You're listening to Hallowed Be, a podcast about how we make meaning and experience the sacred. I'm your host, Esther Wallace. Hallowed Be, our time together today. Welcome to the Hallowed Bee Podcast. Today, I have the great honor and delight of chatting with Diane Daniels, a friend and fellow student at Star King School for the Ministry. Thank you so much for having me, Esther. It has been a wonderful journey so far. I was so excited to hear about your podcast, Hallowed Bee, and I am excited and honored to be a guest Thank you so much. And hi, waving to everyone who's listening right now. I'm so excited we're able to be together over Zoom this morning and have this chat. So I think we first met in a theology class a few years ago, Sophia Betancourt's Unitarian Universalist Theologies. And then I really got to know you last semester in our Decolonizing UU Liturgies course. And that was such a delight. That was a wonderful course. Um, My education at Star King School for the Ministry, you and I are both pursuing, we're both pursuing MDivs, I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure. I am looking at the end of all of this to become ordained Unitarian Universalist clergy. Um, I've been a UU for well over 20 years, and now I'm finding that the more I get into the faith and the more people I meet, the more I want to kind of help spread the word. And it dovetails beautifully with my own personal practice. So I'm really glad it gives me a chance to meet folks like you and then to come on podcasts like yours and to talk about both my personal spiritual practice and my moving forward in my education. It's been really good so far. I'm so glad. I'm always so interested to hear why people decided to go to seminary or divinity school and to hear about the paths that our lives have taken to bring us to that place. And I'm wondering if you would share with us a little about your spiritual identities, your spiritual journey, and what brought you to Star King? Or going back a little bit further, how have your spiritual identities formed and shifted and evolved over time? Ooh, that's a good question. And I'm always, um, when people ask me that, I'm I'm sometimes unsure of how far back to go. But let's go back kind of to the beginning. Um, When I was a very little girl, I was attending Catholic school, not so much for the religious aspect, but because it was nearby my home. That was where daycare was available. How many people out there can relate to that? And when they moved the school outside of the city of Detroit, where I lived with my family, my parents didn't want their six, seven-year-old to ride an hour one way to go to the new school location, so we had to find a different way to get me educated. I went to my neighborhood school for a little while, and my parents were not really big churchgoers. My father never attended organized church services that I knew of the entire time I knew him. My mother had been a member of the Baptist church, but left there because, and this will be a familiar theme, she did not like being treated as a second-class citizen just because she was a woman. And she was a very strong woman, very intelligent woman, and didn't want that for herself or for her children. So as time goes on, I'm getting older, I'm getting curious, and there was a church that was at the end of the block where I lived. It was an AME Zion church, which I now know is African Methodist Episcopal. Since it was only a short ways away, my nephew and I, who's a year younger than me and really more like my brother than my nephew because we really grew up together, we decided we wanted to go to church one Sunday because all the people going in and out had such beautiful clothes on and we liked the music and we said, okay, let's give this a shot. And my mother, because it was just to the end of the block, she went on ahead and let us go. And we went and we were enjoying the music and the service and patting our little feet and clapping our hands. And a very stern lady in the pew in front of us turned around and told us to stop making so much noise. 
Well, we as little kids were kind of taken aback. We'd been trained to respect our elders, so we said nothing. We simply folded our hands in our lap and sat there, still as we could, for the rest of the service. But unfortunately, she ruined that experience for us, and neither of us ever went back to that church. Fast forward a few more years. Now I'm in high school, and I'm investigating. And what sounded right to me at the time was a reverence for nature and the things of nature for animals and plants and the idea that we as human beings were not necessarily meant to be supreme overlords of the planet. Um, I think partly what happened was I was gifted a beautiful flowering tree for a birthday. And what I would do is I would go out and I would sit against the, uh, the bark of this tree, this little, this little stem, little stalk, and I would sing to my tree. And because I did that and I showed the tree love, it bloomed, it flowered. It was the most gorgeous thing in my very urban neighborhood to me. And that was where my pagan side started to show itself. I wanted nothing to happen to my little tree, so I took very good care of it all the way through until the year our fence came down for good. You know, wooden fences, they need, you know, maintenance and that kind of thing. And unfortunately, when they took the fence down, they took my tree with it. I was heartbroken and cried and cried and cried. But um, unfortunately, I didn't replace the tree, but I kept the memory of how much my relationship to the tree had meant to me. So I get through high school, I graduate, I'm going off to college, I'm living my life as an adult. And fortunately, some years down the road, I reconnected with my high school sweetheart, someone I had dated in ninth grade. We broke up for the 10th grade, how many familiar stories I'm sure that is. For some people, we got back together for half of the 11th grade. And then we decided, you know, this romance thing ain't working. Let's just be friends. And we stayed friends after graduation. We stayed friends when he married another classmate of mine because she was my friend too. And what I wanted was my friends to be happy together. Fast forward some more years. I had married and had a child. He had a son Neither of our first marriages worked out, and we reconnected around the time of our 10-year high school reunion. His mother was the one that got us back together. She called looking for reunion information, and at the end of the conversation, she said, oh, you know, um, your last name changed. You know, what, what's going on? And I said, well, I got married. She said, well, how's that going? I said, it's not. I'm divorced. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. And so we chatted a little while longer, and the last thing she said to me was, well, you know, He's divorced too. I said, uh-huh, mama's matchmaking. So a few months down the road, we lot of long distance phone calls. We reconnected, figured out that what we'd felt for each other was still there. And eventually we got married. Conveniently, the same weekend as our 10-year high school reunion. So all our friends were there. Well, when I married my husband, I also married his religion. He'd been, he'd been raised in the fire-baptized Holiness Church of God of the Americas. That's a pretty extreme name, and it is a pretty interesting branch of the Pentecostal church. They were wonderful people, very nice people, loved the folks I met in Detroit, and now my husband was living in Connecticut because he'd relocated because of the Navy, and when I moved to Connecticut after we got married, we decided to go to that denomination church. There was one not too far from him. He knew everyone there because that was his home away from home. So I went with him. And it was interesting for someone who'd not had any formal religious education. I got to go to Sunday school and I started learning about the Bible. And I got to the point where I could actually I had some favorite scriptures I could quote. And there are still favorite scriptures of mine in the Bible that I return to time and again. I love the stories. I love the people in the Bible that I read about and their experiences. What I did not love, unfortunately, was the male chauvinist message we got from the pulpit. The pastor at the time was an older gentleman. Not that that's an excuse for what he did and said, but he would say things from the pulpit like telephone, telegraph, tell a woman to imply that women talk too much. 
And when he did that, the other women in the church who were more used to him would just kind of shake their heads. Me, I'm going to be respectful. I raised my hand. And he said, can I help you, Sister Daniels? I said, sir, what you just said is, is not right. That's inappropriate. It, you're the leader of this church. The children of this church, the young men of this church take you seriously. They don't know if you're kidding around. And they're going to pick that up and go and repeat it out in the world. And it could get them in trouble. Well, he kind of chuckled and kind of blew me off. And unfortunately, he didn't stop doing that. So I would never stop raising my hand. He'd say something inappropriate. I'd raise my hand. And from the pulpit, he would laugh and say, oh, oh, I've upset Sister Daniels again. Well, we had our last falling out with that church when it became obvious that it was more a do as I say, not as I do kind of environment, which doesn't sit well with me. I, one of the guiding principles of my life is authenticity, is me being who I am, where I am. Not that I can't ever change, but if you're not willing to at least seek another path, you can get stuck in a rut. Who wants to be stuck in a rut? And so we eventually left that church. We spent about a year and a half unchurched. And then from two different places in our lives, one from a community elder and one from a shipmate of my husband's, we were invited to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Norwich for a Kwanzaa ceremony. Now, my family had never experienced Kwanzaa, didn't know anything about it, but it sounded good. And this community elder was someone we knew from a couple of different areas. So we said, okay, we'll, we'll show some respect for our elder and we'll go to the service. Well, we went and we fell in love with the people and the path and we started attending services every Sunday. It didn't hurt that we literally lived around the corner from the church. We could walk to church and did often in the spring and summer. And the more we got to know the people, the more we fell in love with them and the principles of the faith. And then at the end of that year, the end of that church year, because some churches take a break during the summer, we decided to sign the book and become members. Our children were welcomed. Um, we were welcomed with open arms. And we enjoyed very much spending time at that church and becoming members. As we continued through our adult lives and we heard so many different wonderful and intelligent people from the pulpit, one of the things that started to pull at me a little bit was, I want to be like those people. I want to learn how to deliver messages that way. I want to bring people hope. I want to challenge their intellect. I want to make them smile, give them things to think about. And without, almost without exception, all of the preachers I'd fallen in love with from the pulpit had attended the Star King School for the Ministry. So when I was looking to continue and start my theological education, that was where I ended up going. Thank goodness for Star King having a distance program. So I didn't have to relocate from Connecticut to Berkeley, California. But I am very much enjoying my time at Star King. I'm in my third year now, working in classes around the rest of my life and everything else that's going on and really very much enjoying myself in part, in no small part, because it lets me meet people like you. Oh, Diane, thank you so much. There's so much of your story that I was just beaming at as you were telling it. There's a piece of something you said, which is that one of the defining characteristics of your life has been authenticity. And I think that's so woven throughout the story you just shared with us about your spiritual development and your calling to ministry. These little moments you shared are coming to me again and again, like when you went to the church and you felt what sounds like this embodied desire to be in movement in worship and to express the joy that you felt through that song that was being sung. And I was thinking about how we wind up being called to or invited to spaces of worship and how beautiful it is to reflect on the experience of a child being like, there's really pretty music coming out of this place and people are dressed up in fun ways and I want to go there and how that's such an authentic desire from the heart. 
And I was also reflecting on what you shared about your tree and how your relationship with that beautiful flowering tree seems to have been driven by this same pure inner authenticity, just being with the tree in its presence. And as I'm thinking about spiritual development, I just find that so beautiful. These moments when perhaps we can't fully describe what's calling us to be in presence, but it's really undeniable that we are experiencing something sacred. You know when it's right. And for people that are looking to develop a spiritual path, maybe something different than what they grew up with or what they've known, think about what feels right in the core of your being. For me, that was both Unitarian Universalism and my pagan side, because that has changed and shifted as I've grown older and matured. Things are definitely changing, and you got to leave room for that change to happen. When I hear you say, leave room for the change to happen, I think about it in conjunction with this thread of the authenticity piece um, and also your call to ministerial leadership and you meeting folks who had been trained at Star King and thinking, I want to hold ministerial space like them. And I was thinking about your experience in the fire-baptized Holiness Church of God of the Americas and this image of you raising your hand again and again to speak the truth just sat with me. And this image of you speaking the truth of your experience and speaking the truth to someone who had a great deal of influence and power from his position as a minister and a spiritual leader, and you saying, please take this seriously. Your words have an impact. And the image of this man dismissing you repeatedly and Also, you returning to that practice again and again is so powerful, and thank you for doing that. And I couldn't help but think that was ministry. That was you being in a pastoral ministerial role. I remember thinking that my daughter, who was less than three years old at the time, was hearing this and we don't really, we know that kids hear and understand more than we think they do. And my son was seven when we moved to Connecticut. Um, but he was probably eight or nine at the time. And I'd heard him repeat a couple of things. The pastor had said from the pulpit, most of it was just fine, but every once in a while, one of those male chauvinistic things would slip in And I'd have to, as my mother would say, chalk his wheels to stop him from heading down that path because not only was I not going to deal with it, I didn't want him putting that on his baby sister. And I definitely didn't want him to take it home and say it to my mother, whose reaction would not have been anywhere near as gentle as mine would have been. I didn't want him growing up with that as an example. And that was one of the reasons why I had to keep raising my hand and I had to keep saying something because even if I was the only voice that said it, he could never then say, no one ever told me I was offending them. No one ever told me I was hurting them. And we've heard that, unfortunately, from people in today's world where they say, well, I didn't realize that was being offensive. I didn't realize I was upsetting someone. So what's the way they say it? If you see something, say something. Well, sometimes it's if you hear something, say something. Because even giving someone the benefit of the doubt, they may not realize the impact their words have. They don't necessarily realize how heavy those words can land especially if it's something that doesn't personally affect them. For a pastor to say things like telephone, telegraph, tell a woman from the pulpit, that doesn't affect him. I would think that it would, it would affect him because he'd be talking about his wife or his mother, his daughter or his sister, trusted members of his congregation or his board of management or other people with whom he has a relationship And you absolutely have to understand there is so much power in the spoken word. It's why service leaders and ministers have such responsibility. Because there is more weight 
put on their words, even if they themselves wouldn't say it that way, as an authority, as a knowledgeable and hopefully experienced authority, they understand the weight that their words carry. Yes, I'm thinking a lot about accountability in spaces of spiritual practice and ministry as we're going into this strand. I think I've learned in the process of being a seminary student, but also through my experiences in various traditions, the impact that it can have when it feels like there's a structure for inviting leadership to accountability and reflection and ongoing learning versus when there isn't that when it feels like someone in a position of authority gets to make this ultimate call on whether they are in an accountable relationship or not. And I hope that's something Unitarian Universalism continues to work with itself on. We're not perfect, but I'm excited by the direction the UUA seems to be moving in terms of how ministers engage in lifelong learning and in relationships of mutual accountability, both with colleagues and with congregations. And I'm wondering if you may have any thoughts or reflections to share on how that intersects with UU ministerial practice. Oh, it's a big part of UU ministerial practice. I mean, how can you put yourself out there as a minister and as a leader? Because that's how you're going to be seen, regardless of whether you think you're ready to play that role or not. Once you get the title minister, there's a lot of baggage, shall we say, that comes along with it. That there are people who will never relate to you in the same way again because you now have that title minister. There is an expectation that you are more learned, that you're wiser, that you have more control over your emotions, that you don't make mistakes. And unfortunately, when we project that kind of perfection onto ministers, we don't leave as much room for them to be human. And their humanness is part of what makes them good ministers. You can have someone with all the theological education in the world, but if they don't have a space in their heart for the seeker, for the one who is unsure, for the person who needs to ask questions before they can make that commitment to a spiritual path, to a church, to a, a line of thinking. You have to encourage people to do that. It's scary territory, especially if it's something you've never experienced or don't know a lot about. And ministers are also seen, ministers' reverence, we're also seen as shepherds we get to kind of encourage people along, not necessarily giving them all the answers, but giving them enough to get them to the next step. Because another part of that is helping that person be responsible for their own spiritual journey. One of the things that drew me to Unitarian Universalism was the welcoming of questions, that there was not a set creed, a set of rules that you had to follow. Now, we do have our seven and maybe someday down the road an eighth principle. Principles are not written in stone, hence the discussions now around the eighth principle. They are meant to guide us, but not to restrict us. And one of the things that, that also drew me to the faith was that very first principle about the inherent worth and dignity of every person, not just the people we like, not just the people we can relate to, not just the ones we grew up with or went to school with. Every single person has that inherent worth and dignity, and they don't have to do anything to earn it other than to be. That's it. That was one of the main things that attracted me to the faith. You mean I can come just as I am, as perfectly imperfect as I am with all the mistakes I make and the times I mess up, and it's still okay that I still have inherent worth and dignity. And the answer from everyone I talked to was yes. That means you just as you are. It's so valuable to be accepted for who and what you authentically are. That is what keeps me a fan of this faith of Unitarian Universalism. 
Mm, yes. I'm wondering if we can return to a theme that kind of goes along with the way Unitarian Universalism encourages us to keep asking questions and encourages us as ministers to keep developing spiritually. Um, can you tell us about your current spiritual identities? You were referencing your pagan practice along with your UU practice, and I'm wondering if you can share how those identities weave together, and or are there other practices you'd like to reflect on? I know I'm really excited to reflect a little bit on the practice of ancestor veneration with you. Ooh, more identities. Probably as I get older and mature, I will learn more things and I may incorporate even more into my practices. Um, I was a teenager when my brother, who was, I would now call him a fundamentalist Christian, he and I sat down, I think we were sitting on the porch one day, and that was the day that after talking to him and encouragement from him, I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And started, you know, into reading the Bible and getting more education, but it was an unusual circumstance in that it brought me closer to him, but it also made me ask more questions. The more I learned, the more questions I wanted to ask. And sometimes there were answers that I could take in and think about and say, yep, that works for me. And sometimes there were answers where I said, mm, no, I'm, I'm not real good with that one. And quite often, the answer to my question was, just take it as it's written and basically don't ask anymore. What I found in Unitarian Universalism was an encouragement to ask questions. Keep asking questions. You don't understand something? Ask. You want to go deeper with something? Ask. If you want to know how that subject relates to other people in other faiths, Ask, and if you can, ask the person who's following that faith. And in doing that, with that encouragement, I learned so much about so many different people and about how much we truly have in common. When I was a teenager, I was attracted to the practice of Wicca. Now, Wicca's a big, huge subject. I think of graphics I've seen of the world tree that extends from one horizon to the other, and the branches are just beautiful and, and full of leaves and some flowers, and that's just what you can see on the surface. When you go beneath, there are roots that spread two to four times as wide as the tree is wide and as tall as the tree is tall. There is so much to be found in the entire subject of Wicca. So I checked books out of the library as a teenager and started trying to learn more about this path that called me. I felt because of my experience with my little flowering tree, I knew trees had spirits. I knew it. I knew animals had spirits because we had dogs all the while I was growing up. And nobody can tell me that dogs don't have spirit and a personality. They are so wonderful creatures. I've had dogs my entire life and absolutely adore them. And because I did not, unfortunately at the time, have anyone that I could go to, to say, teach me more about this, I eventually let the practice drop. And I regret that because I think I could have learned so much more, but it stayed kind of in the back of my mind. I was never the one that would just adhere to what I was told. I was always asking questions, always. And I love that about my children who are now grown adults, but they ask questions because we encourage them to do so. So the older I got, the more I wanted to know about my family and the different parts of my family. Unfortunately, my father passed away when I was nine. I did not get a chance to find out who my paternal grandparents were. I never got a chance to meet them. I had a rich and beautiful relationship with my maternal grandmother. She was the one that took care of us during the summers when my parents, who both worked in a hospital, worked really close together shifts. Like one would work mornings, one would work afternoons, and there wasn't really a lot of time in between. So the parent going off for the morning shift would drop us at my grandmother's 
We would stay there all day. She'd feed us lunch, depending on schedule, sometimes dinner, and then we'd go home with the parents. And during the summer, that was what we did. We spent summers over at grandma's in the same city, but just the other side of town. And being in that kind of extended family relationship and knowing my mother's brother and sisters, my aunts and my uncles was so wonderful and so rich. They told me stories of my mom when she was a little girl. And I learned so much from my grandmother that it was a natural extension when I became an adult to do some genealogical research and to research who my ancestors were. I knew they were out there. I knew some of the names, but I didn't know the stories and I didn't know how they'd be personally significant to me. And so I started finding out about a process called ancestor veneration, the honoring of those who have gone before. And I did not get a chance, unfortunately, to ask as many questions as I would love to have asked of my ancestors. And if you are listening to this podcast right now, talk to your elders. Talk to them now while you have the chance, while they're close to you, while you can get them on the phone, you can get them on a Zoom call, you can write them letters. If you have the opportunity, whatever opportunity you have, talk to them. Unfortunately, I am the last of my immediate family that's left. Both my parents have passed away. My older brother and sister have passed away. I'm the last one. And I am working as hard as I can to discover as much as I can about my ancestry so I can pass that information on to my children. My mother's family, I know quite a lot about. There was very good documentation, and my grandmother kept all kinds of information about that side of the family. My father, unfortunately, did not. And that's a gap in my genealogy information is that I don't know a lot about his parents. I know their names. I know where they're from. But beyond that, it's been a lot of online research that has helped me. And so I wanted that deeper relationship. And I heard about the process of using an ancestor altar to reach out to and connect with those people who are part of my family and I of theirs, but who I'd never had a chance to meet. Now, if you do a Google search for Ancestor Altar, you're going to probably come up with a couple million pages and many different ways to do it. And for a while, I got sucked into the internet rabbit hole, and I went researching and looking and looking and looking, and I finally found someone who said, keep it simple. And that's the way I decided to continue. So I started with things like photographs of my mother and my father. I have a small table. Eh, it's not that small. It's probably a good-sized table in the room I call my sanctuary in my house. And I have a picture of my mother and a picture of my dad. And I sit there and I talk to them. And it's just things like, I miss you. I love you. Tell me if you're here. Let me know that you're still watching over me. I feel in my heart that they are. But there's a way to get deeper with the connection. And that's what I started doing. I just started talking to them. It doesn't require any specific language. It doesn't require anything flowery or formal. In fact, it's better if it comes straight from the heart. And you don't always get an obvious answer, you know, the booming voice from above that says, yes, my child. No, it's quite often not like that. You'll get a feeling, a sense. Remember what it felt like to have those people around you. Start with your immediate ancestors. For me, it was my mom and dad. Later on, I added my brother who had passed away. I added my sister who had passed away to my ancestor altar. And one caution, don't put living people on your ancestor altar. They're not ancestors yet. And don't push them in that direction unless you're ready to let them go. That's a whole nother conversation. You can start with one person. Who was most special to you? Might be your grandmother. It might be a parent. 
It might be an aunt or an uncle you had a close relationship with. It could be a sibling. But start with that one person. Keep it simple and keep it easy. Provide for yourself a picture of them, something of theirs to help you focus your energy. And then only other thing you need is a white candle and a glass of water. That's all you need. The candle is to also help you focus your energy. And what happens with my candles when I'm talking to my ancestors and the way I know they're there, the flame dances and flickers. It'll go higher and lower. And the personal items of theirs are also to help attract their energy and let them know that it's me looking for them. I've been doing this now for a couple of years, taking my time because there is no rush about this kind of practice because as much as you need to grow, they need to be able to grow into a connection with you. So you'll hear stories about people seeing ghosts or apparitions or spirits. That may not happen for everyone. What may happen is that you might smell your grandmother's perfume when she's there in the room with you, or you might hear the favorite music of your parents. I know I feel close to my parents when I hear jazz and R&B because that's the music they loved. Take your time in building whatever practice you decide to take on. Learn what you can to take the next step. You don't have to know everything before you start. What you do have to have, though, is an open mind and an open heart. Come to whatever practice you're developing, and especially if it involves your ancestors, with a sense of love and exploration. They want the best for you. Our ancestors, all of us, they worked every day of their lives to build better lives for those coming behind them. So you don't have to be afraid of them. They are there to connect with you. They want the best for you. And if you're, you're hesitating about getting started, just remember, you have everything within you that you need to start talking to and connecting with your ancestors. It's all right there within you. I've been so excited to hear more about your practice of ancestral veneration. And as you were sharing, I was thinking about my maternal grandmother, who, as you know, died last fall, actually, uh, during the class we took together. And um, as you know, I went to Atlanta to be with her and to help care for her during her final days. And it's been really interesting for me to be in relationship with my grandmother, my Mimi, in life and then in death. We were very close. Uh, she's the person who got me saved when I was four years old, making biscuits with her in her kitchen. She was on a mission, and she was a very devout Christian, pretty traditionally so. I would describe her as a very Southern woman and sort of very immersed in Southern white Christian culture. And I was raised with a very binary view of life and death, which my grandmother uh, certainly reinforced to a certain degree. And the idea that I could be in relationship with ancestors or call on an ancestor was pretty edgy for me the first time I heard it. It's just not something my family encouraged me to do as a child or would have wanted me to do. And yet, paradoxically, my Mimi was also the person in my life who in some way came very close to having this kind of relationship with her ancestors, specifically her mother, my great-grandmother. And my great-grandmother died about eight months before I was born, and I think my Mimi always felt that she and her mother and I were connected in kind of a special way. She would talk to me about my great-grandmother a lot and share how close she felt to her mama. And I remember her saying to me many times as a child and teen, I really missed mama today. And so I started talking to her and telling her about what's going on. And I would just say, oh, mama, I miss you and I love you. And one time in particular, it had been around the time of her mother's birthday. And she told me, I really missed mama. And so I bought her a birthday card 
And I took it out and I talked to her and I read it to her on her birthday. And I know she was here with me. And I don't recall her saying that about anyone else or really talking that way about other dead people. And it really stuck with me as a child. And so as an adult, when I first started to learn about the practice of connecting with my ancestors and really began to question whether I could connect with them, at first I was like, how do I do this? I have no idea what I'm doing. And I wound up finding my way in by being really present with my own body and thinking about how my ancestors are alive in my cells and how their DNA is my DNA and how they literally make me up. And since then, I've been gradually able to become more aware of what feels like maybe energetic presences of my ancestors. And I've heard from a few different teachers that when someone transitions into death, it's a good practice to give them maybe a year to settle into that transition before really trying to make contact and have this relationship with them as an ancestor. So after my grandmother died, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give Mimi about a year to ease into this new state. Um, but the funny thing is she's been really, really active and kind of nudging me. She has been regularly showing up in my dreams and doing and saying things that are just so her. And over the past two months or so, I've really found myself kind of out of the blue thinking about how she would talk to me about connecting with her own mother. And it came to me that, you know, maybe she wants me to talk to her. So I have been, I just talk to her during my days when she comes to mind and I kind of share what's up, what's going on in the world, and sharing my gratitude for her and my love for her. I'm so excited to hear you encourage folks to just start talking from the heart and really simply. For me, sometimes I can get caught up in this idea of, do I sound silly? And then I think, it's okay to sound silly. It's okay to feel a little funny doing this and a little unsure. And this is my grandmother and she loves me. And this is our relationship to cultivate. And I'm curious what you might say to folks who want to ask, what's the elevator pitch for ancestral veneration? And if I have no idea where to start, how should I start building an altar? The elevator pitch is... It comes in the form of a question to begin with. Um, Who are your ancestors? They are family members who lived and worked and died before you did. If you're not sure who you could or would call an ancestor, start with immediate family and realize that you don't have to be religious to do this. You don't have to be any kind of an expert. You don't have to be afraid or unsure. Begin with a belief that your benevolent and elevated ancestors mean you no harm. You're part of their family. And you, right there where you are, sitting, listening to this podcast, you are strong enough You are smart enough, you're good enough, and you can rightfully feel authentic in wanting to connect to your ancestors. Stay real. Stay true to yourself and to your values and keep it simple. Elaborate and expensive is not what they would have wanted from you. Start with a photograph, one candle, whatever color you happen to have around. I choose white because you can use them for anything and a glass of water and start there. Things that you have right around your house and just sit and talk to them and then listen because sometimes that's the hardest part for us. Just listen and they will be in touch because they love you and they want the best for you. And I love that your Mimi came in to see you. I love that, that it didn't take a year. What's a year? For us, that sense of time is is definite and it's linear. For them, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. So maybe the year is for us to get used to the idea that we can reconnect with them. But I know stories of people who had an ancestor crossover and within a few days, They were hearing from them 
again and connecting with them again. So take the time if you need it and be open and be ready for them to connect with you because they really do want to. They want to stay close to us and they want us to remember them, call their names, remember what they did in this life. Thank them for all that they did and they taught you and they showed you and the love they gave you and the way they looked out for you. All of that is part of ancestor veneration. In Judaism, which is the tradition I like to say I am becoming into, there's a prayer called the Mourner's Kaddish. And I've learned that it can be understood in a multitude of ways, often as a collective ritual observance of mourning and grief, and as a way of honoring our beloved dead, and also as a way of speaking blessings to the divine as if we are speaking with our ancestors' mouths, which is one that's really stuck with me and resonated. And this practice has been so meaningful to me in bringing me back to remembering my benevolent ancestors, even the ones whose names I don't know, and remembering that they're connected to me and to all that is, and I'm connected to them and to all that is. And I have a quick curiosity question for you. Why the glass of water on the altar? Sometimes um, when your ancestors come through, you will see changes in that glass. Some people see bubbles. Some people see shapes. Occasionally they'll see the water. Um, The bubbles will increase and get larger when there is spirit present. Some people, as they develop their ancestral veneration practice, they actually fix food for their ancestors and share their dinner or their breakfast or their lunch. Maybe bring the ancestor that they're wanting to connect with their favorite food. Now, they don't necessarily consume the food the way you or I would, but they can consume the energy that's there. I have a specific glass on my ancestor altar. My mother's favorite color was blue. And so I put a glass of fresh water on the altar. It's a blue glass. It's absolutely gorgeous. And sometimes when I'm in the the sanctuary and talking to my ancestors, I can see more bubbles in the water. It's not like it's boiling, but almost like the bubbles you get from a glass of soda, the carmination type bubbles. They're just little and they're just there. And the more of them I see, the more I believe those are my ancestors coming through to say, yep, gotcha. And sometimes I go back and I check the glass. I change the water periodically, not necessarily every day, but every few days. And I'll notice that the water level's gone down. And it's more than would happen with normal evaporation. So I know that for whatever reason, that water has been taken, the energy from it has been taken, and my ancestors have put it to good use. Oh, wow. Oh, how wonderful. Diane, it's been such a joy to chat with you, and thank you so much for this time of sharing. I'm wondering, as we wind down, if you'd like to offer some closing words for us. Oh, absolutely, I would. I want to thank you, everyone who came to listen to this podcast. Please like, share, recommend. I am thrilled to pieces that Esther, my friend, my classmate, is doing this. It's a valuable service that you are providing, Esther, and information that I don't know that people could get anyplace else. I want to encourage you to to keep your mind open, keep your heart open, keep your spirit open. Talk to your ancestors, those who have the wisdom and the experience, and bring them back into your life. Call their names because the most sweet, the sweetest sound anyone could ever hear is the sound of their own name. So call their names, bring them closer to you, let them know that they have not been forgotten, and then give yourself the gift of quiet so that you can hear when they're talking back to you. May you be blessed in all of your goings in, your comings out, and your learnings. Amen. Ashe. Blessed be. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Hallowed Be. This podcast has been recorded on Chochenyo Ohlone land, and I offer my gratitude and respect to all the First Peoples of this place, and to the First Peoples of the places where you are listening. I want to thank Diane Daniels for being my very first podcast guest. I'm so grateful for all the wisdom she shared with us, and I can't wait to invite her back for more conversation. I want to let you know that Diane also has a podcast, and it's called The Spiritually Authentic Woman. It's launching very soon, and when it does, I'll link it from our Twitter feed. You can find Diane online at divastyleministry.com and on Facebook and Twitter at dsminister. That's divastyleministry.com and dsminister. If you feel curious about any of the topics we discussed, please feel welcome to reach out to one or both of us. As a note for folks who may be curious about developing and cultivating an ancestral reverence practice, a really important thing to do is to set the intention of connecting with benevolent ancestors. When you're talking to your ancestors out loud or silently meditating on their presence at an altar, you can use language like bright and benevolent ancestors to invoke ancestors who have your well-being at heart. My chosen way of languaging this is luminous and benevolent ancestors. You can follow Hallowed Bee on Twitter at Hallowed Bee Pod and visit our website at hallowedbee.org. This podcast's theme music is Martian Snow by Justin Michael Brown. The podcast is co-produced by Alex Rudy, and I'm your host, Esther Wallace. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify, and if you're inclined, you're most welcome to leave a review, which would be gratefully received. Until next time, hallowed be this time we've shared together. Hallowed be our learnings and our curiosities. Hallowed be our lives. <laughs>